0: Called higher vision. And so today, since it's Valentine's Day, right? And so I, I just love, uh, Dave and I, we were in uh, Arizona and we went into the candy shop and really awesome candy shop out there. And so the girls were doing something else and uh, we went into this candy shop and Dave, it was all Valentine's and he, did, he went up to the counter and he goes, I'd just like to thank you guys for reminding me that Valentine's Day is coming up, you know? Because that's kind of how we are as guys. It just kind of sneaks up on us and we're like, it's today? No way. Anyway, So you've had your you've had your uh, you've had your call out. So we're doing this today. We're going to talk about family vision for the family. Everybody say this. This is what the Bible says. Where there is no vision, the people perish. There's another translation that says the same thing, but it says the people are without restraint, which means where there is no vision, the people don't know where they're going. So we have to have a vision. We have a God who's a vision, who's a visionary God. The Bible tells us in the book of Acts that young men will dream dreams and old men will see visions. So we are a people of visionaries and dreamers. And so vision is very important. Helen Keller, if you're familiar with who she is, yes, my zipper's down. It will not be down anymore. (laughs) I'm like, "Is is it cold in here? What's going on? Ellen Keller uh, was a gal in the early part of the century, 19th century, and she was deaf and she was blind, and she learned to speak, and she said, worse than being blind is being able to see but having no vision. So vision is very important. So next slide. And so I'm going to talk to you this morning in two parts, and really the teaching is kind of a summary of some concepts. And so a lot of the concepts themselves could be taught in a full lesson, but I will not do that. I'm just going to give you guys some concepts. so we're going to talk about, we're going to do it in two parts this morning. We're going to talk about the family, but i am also got singleness involved. So singles, I got you, right? I got you. So we're going to combine it. So the first part is going to be about singleness. We're talking about a vision for your singleness or a vision for your future. And then the second part, I'm going to give you four, like, kind of lenses or some directions to go in this year for your family that will add value to your family. So, you know, this is a statistic, 90% of all people who desire to marry will marry. So that's good news, right? Say the clock's ticking, man. But 90% of all people who desire to marry will marry. You do not have to get married as a Christian. But what you do need to understand is that it's God's created intent. He saw Adam. He created Adam. And then the Bible says that the Lord saw that man was alone, and he said it is not good that man should be alone. Okay? A man left by himself for any length of time, it's not good. It just isn't good. You ever been into a single guy's apartment? Not good. Okay, Pizza boxes, lawn chairs. This is how we do laundry. We walk up to the basket and we smell it. Yeah, I can wear that again. That's what, that's what happens when you're single, right? Come on. Help me out here. So marriage is not, God says God created man and woman to be at one. And he said that it's not good for a man to be alone. It's God's and in created intent. Let's just say this together. Marriage is designed to make me holy. Marriage does not always make you happy. Is there happiness in marriage? Yes, there is. Is there joy in marriage? Yes, yes, there is. But that's not the intent of marriage. Marriage is designed to make you holy. As a pastor, I get people that come to me and they want to sit down and they're like, the marriage isn't working out. And I'm like, why? Oh, we got problems over here, got problems over here, got problems over here. It just isn't working out. And I'm like, no, it's doing exactly what it's designed to do. Marriage doesn't fix you, it reveals you. Marriage doesn't fix anything. What it does is it reveals you. It reveals your character, your lack of it. It reveals you're good, you're bad, and you're ugly. It shows you the things that you have to work on. It shows you the things that you're good at. So marriage does. And so we kind of drink the Kool-Aid in our culture, and we think that marriage is supposed to be this blissful experience that we're all just supposed to be, it's just happiness and rainbows. And when I get married, I'm going to live in the world of my little pony, and nothing is ever going to go wrong with my life. That is completely wrong. And that is not the intent of marriage. Marriage is beautiful. Marriage is wonderful. I've been married 25 years. Okay? Yes. This month. I know. I can't, go, can't believe it's gone by so quickly. It's crazy. So I feel that I'm qualified. When I wasn't married and I was single and I became a Christian after a few little while of walking with Jesus and trying to understand the things of the faith, I thought I had it all figured out. Oh, I can do this. Is no problem. I thought I was a really good guy. No issues with me. Kevin's okay, right? Then I get married and I realize I didn't know how screwed up I actually was. You know, I didn't know how lack of patience, I, how little patience I actually had. I didn't realize I had a temper problem. I didn't realize I had all these grievous insecurities that I had to weave my way through. I didn't understand all of that. But marriage, what it does is it reveals you, and in partnership with the Lord and with your spouse, it fixes you. Next slide. So you do not have to marry. But if you want to get married, this is the first question you have to ask. If you're single, this is a vision for your singleness. You do not have to marry, and I'm not gonna talk necessarily about that. I'm gonna kinda go down a little bit more along the lines of uh, marrying. The question you have to ask is do you want to marry? That's question number one, right? So you don't have to marry, but do you wanna marry? And the reason is is because if you don't know if you wanna marry or not, the chances of getting married are very, very slim. It's reduced drastically. So do you want to get married? That's question one. And you say, how do I know if I'm supposed to get married? Isn't there people in the Bible where they don't get married and they just kind of you know, follow the Lord and maybe it's not God's will for me to get married? How do I know? I'm glad you asked because the Bible gives you an answer. It says, if they cannot control themselves, 1 Corinthians 7, 9, they should go ahead and marry, for it is buried better to marry than to burn with lust. Real simple answer on whether or not you should get married is do you burn with lust? okay. Is that the the problem? Is Is that an issue with you? Why? Because God's intent is singleness means celibacy. That's the idea of singleness. Singleness means celibacy according to the scripture. So what are you trying to say, Kevin? If I'm single, I can't go around and sleep with all of these people? That's what the Bible says. Okay? Singleness means celibacy very important. So if you want to marry, first thing you got to do is you got to align yourself. You say, well, why, why, why do I have to be celibate if I'm single? Nobody else does it. Everybody's living with their boyfriends and girlfriends. Everybody's moving on, you know, love the one they're with, you know, kind of hook up, you know, shack up, you know, that whole kind of thing's all going on. Why should I have to, why should I not do that? Because if you're a Christian, you're not of this world. We're of another kingdom. We're an entirely different species of people. That's the idea. Jesus is our king. The Bible is our path, our word, our law. That's what we follow. And so when you're married, when you're single and you're doing these things, what the Bible says is it says this. Marriage is honorable among all and the bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. <laughs> what does that mean? It means God has sex outside of marriage. is called fornication. Sex inside of marriage with someone other than your marriage partner is called adultery. What is the Lord saying when He makes that statement? First of all, He's saying marriage is honorable. Marriage is the highest form of honor expressed between a man and a woman unto me. And then the bed is undefiled. What does that mean? It means go for it, have at it. Blessing, permissive will, do it. Fornication and adultery. What does that mean? What does it mean that it's judged? It means two things. Number one, God's judged it and He says it's sin. Number two, he's judged it, and that means there's an absence of blessing. There's no blessing on that relationship. That's why you move in with your boyfriend or you do all these different things, and you're outside the covenant of God, and you always feel like there's something missing. What's missing here? Why, why, is, the, why is there something missing? Because there's no blessing on it. That's the point. And so what does it mean? Is it a sin? When it says a sin, does that mean I'm condemned? In Christ, you are not Condemned. There's two types of sin. This is a very, very foundational teaching, and I come back to this point all of the time because this concept is severely misunderstood within the church. There's two types of sin according to the scripture. There's the sin of condemnation, which is the word harmatano, and there's the sin of missing the mark, which is harmatia, two different words entirely. The sin that condemns man is the rejection of Christ. That's what it means, to reject Jesus Harmatano means the, means to offend, to push off of the mark. So what happened Adam and Eve fell and when they what they did is they pushed God off of the mark. God held the mark or the, the lordship or the rulership of their life and the sin pushed him away. And said you are not Lord, I'm Lord. That's why the Bible says we're sons and daughters of Adam, all we like sheep have gone astray, each one has gone to our own way. We've left the Lord and the Lord has laid upon Christ the iniquity of us all. Jesus paid for the sin of the offense. So that when you come back to Jesus, this is how it works. What do we call him? It starts with an L. Help me out. Jesus is Lord. Why is that important? It's not Jesus is my friend. Jesus is the man upstairs. Jesus is Lord. It means I submit my heart unto him. I'm no longer in charge. He's in charge. That's the whole idea. That's the whole concept of salvation. Because man has lost and push the Lordship of God away. Therefore, we must return. That's the word repent to Shuva. We must return to the Lord and call him Lord. We must return to him and bow our hearts in submission and say, I give my heart to you. You give your heart to me. I bow my heart to you. You are now my Lord. I am no longer in charge of my life. The Bible says you are not your own. You see how it works? That's what the Bible says. You are no longer your own. He bought you with a price. You now belong to him. We've submitted unto his lordship. So what does it mean to sin in a way that doesn't condemn you? You say, well, if I do all these sins, am I condemned? The Bible says if you're in Christ, there is therefore now, right now, and forevermore, no condemnation. You are never condemned, nor can you be separated from God. You can't. So what does it mean to sin then? It's the word harmatia, and it means to miss the mark. Every Christian, every believer, every family, every church has a redemptive destiny and has a God-given destiny. When we sin, we make choices outside the line of our destiny, outside the line of our creative purpose. So when we make choices to go into areas that are not defined, so if we make a choice to begin to create these, these sort of relationships outside of the way God designed it, you are missing the mark. Does that make sense? God has a created destiny. And when you sin, you're not condemned, but you're missing the mark of what he has for you. that's the point. And so what the Lord is doing is trying to always get you back onto the mark. He's trying to work it out for your good. Is this making sense to anybody here, right? The the good news, this is why it's called amazing grace. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Some of you have been taught stuff that you can lose your salvation. It's not what the Bible says it doesn't say that it never teaches that and you say well how can people do the things that they're doing because they're never converted conversion is of the heart and not the head very important to understand people get converted in their heads they think they believe with the mind but they've never had a born again experience when you're born again you're born again boom Jesus is in you you know that's just how it happens. So the things that were people, they're not born again, and then they've never had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. Those are our transformation processes. We come to Christ, we come born again, boom, I'm a new person. Now I receive power in the Holy Spirit to live out this new life. That's the design of God. So when we follow that, people that that believe in their mind, you're not converted. It's not intellectual assent. We don't ascend to the gospel. If anything, God intentionally offends the mind intentionally offends the mind. And it says, the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, whom the God of this world has blinded their eyes. It seems foolish. It's, it's an offense to your mind. To the Greek, the gospel is offensive. To the Jew, it's a stumbling block. God intent, because he's not trying to redeem your mind. He's trying to get your heart. You can believe something without understanding it. You guys ever travel on an airplane? Right? You believe that airplane's going to fly, or you wouldn't get on it. Yet very few of us in the room actually understand how jet propulsion works. So you can believe something without understanding it. You understand? That's the point. So we come into Christ and we believe the gospel. We believe, but we don't maybe not understand everything. So the first thing is, is understanding that we have to to walk in God's ways and to understand that when we make these choices, we are outside of his path. And so what I tell people when they they tell me, well, I'm going to do it anyway. I go, well, then expect, then adjust your expectations. Don't expect God to bless it because he won't. Well, he understands. No, he doesn't. He's set away. He's God. We follow him. We he doesn't follow us. That's the point. So we line our hearts up with him. So if you want to marry, this is a big question, and it's great. Marriage is God's created design. Again, you don't have to, but you must be celibate. Are you marriage material? What does this look like? Say, I want to get married. This is who I want, and this is what I want. Well, here's the question. What do you look like in this process? You know what I'm saying? And uh, I tell this story all the time because it's super funny. At least it's funny to me. It was one of the most funniest moments in my life. My wife had, uh, there was a guy that we knew who wanted to date my wife's friend. And he kept telling Sherry, hey, hook me up, hook me up, hook me up, hook me up. And so uh, Paul was his name. And he used to wear track suits and wear rope chains, right? And so Sherry goes, if you want her, this isn't going to work, okay? This little John Gotti track suit rap singer, rope chain kind of thing, she's not gonna go for that. You know, she wants a guy who's, you know, put together, she's like, cut your hair, you know, that kind of thing. And so a lot of times we know what we want, but we don't ask ourselves, am I ready, am I in a position to marry? And what does it look like to be in a position to marry? These elements right here, no one's going to arrive at them. So no one's ever going to be perfectly humble, or perfectly teachable, or perfectly servant-oriented, or perfectly accountable. But these elements have to be in your life to some degree. Are you marryable? Do you have elements of humility in you? Do you have elements of teachability in you? Are you servant-oriented? And servitude means when you don't want to. Can I get a witness from any married people in the room? Right? We serve one another when we don't want to. That's what it means. And accountable. And if you don't have these pieces in some kind of operation in your life, when you get married, it is going to be very difficult for you. You cannot be married and be proud and arrogant. It won't last. If you built it upon a foundation of sand, you have to be humble. You know what humble is? I love this. Let's understand humble. The the root word for humble is the same root word for humiliation. So we're clear. So usually when you're humble, you're feeling humiliation. That's truly what humility is. Jesus took aside his garments, put on a towel, and got down and washed feet. You don't think he felt humiliation? You don't think he lowered himself beneath what he could have been? Of course he did, but he willingly did it to teach us what humility looks like. So do we have elements of humility? Are you willing to say you're sorry? Are you willing to apologize? Are you teachable? Are you willing to grow? Are you going to say, I'm this way. I've been this way since I was born. I'm going to be this way for the rest of my life. Again, in marriage, that's not going to work. Can I get a witness? Are there any married people in the room? This is not going to work. You know, servant-oriented and accountable. Are you willing to take accountability for your actions and your inactions? Again, this is an apologetic posture. So are you marriage material? So get yourself and start putting these character pieces in place. And here's the second one. Do you know what you are looking for? You say, no, do you know who I'm looking for? That's not what the Bible tells you to do. It tells you what to look for, not who to look for. It's not saying, well, I want this, tar, dark, and handsome. I want her to look like this, you know, whatever. Describe her out. It says, do you know who I'm looking for? No, do you know what you're looking for? The Bible tells you to look for character. Character is who you are when no one is looking. That's what character means. And we can all shine each other on dates and all this other stuff, but we're looking for people of character. Character, humility, teachable, servant-oriented, accountable. Those are some elements of character. One of the highest levels of character is a love for Jesus. Do they love Jesus? You know how we like we walk down the street, we can name all kinds of people who claim to know Jesus and claim to love Jesus, yet rarely demonstrate it. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? That should be etched upon the, go- the doorways of every church on the front and on the back. Why do you, co- first one coming in should be Jeremiah 7, don't trust in lying vanities or don't trust in appearances. And then on the way out, it should say, why do you call me Lord and not do what I'm saying? So we're reminded that it's not about vanity. We're reminded that it's about servitude of Christ. And so what does it look like to demonstrate Jesus? Do they go to church on their own? Or do you got to put a pacifier in their mouth or put them in a baby walker and you got to handhold them in the door, right? I, 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 see it, I see it mainly with girls. I guess maybe the girls are more the ones willing to talk about it and the guys maybe don't experience it as much or they do, but they don't just talk about it. The girls are like, well, he says he loves me and he says he loves Jesus. And I'm like, he doesn't go to church at all? No, no, he doesn't love me. <laughs> or he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't need to go to church. He doesn't need to go to church. He doesn't, he doesn't need to go. And so what happens is a lot of times and again, I, I pick on on the guys because this is typically how guys are. It, oftentimes I'm not saying, you know, somebody's going to come up to me, and go, you know, women are like that, too. Yeah, I get it. But oftentimes it's the guy going, baby, I want to minister to you. I'm a Christian girl. Let me lay hands on you. Let me show you what it looks like, you know. And so that's not character. Do they love Jesus? Do they demonstrate a love for Christ? Are they doing it on their own or do they have to be handheld? That's the question. Because if they don't love Jesus more than they love you, you're going to have a problem. Do not yoke an ox with an ass, the Bible says. Literally. The ox wants to go this way. The ass doesn't want to move at all, right? right? Doesn't wants to, go to the, wants to go to the left when the ox goes to the right. That's what it tells us. And then what it's relating to is don't marry an unbeliever. And it tells us that very clearly, because you're going to be diametrically opposed on the very foundation of your life. So what are you looking for? You're looking for character. You're looking for compatibility. What does compatibility look like, singles? It looks like spiritual compatibility. Are you spiritually equal in your love for the Lord, right? It looks like emotional compatibility. Can you bond on an emotional level? Do you care about the same things? Or are you completely going into opposite directions on what you care about? And I'm not saying care about everything. She likes pink. You like blue. Okay, you're not gonna, the odds of you coming together on that are slim. But the point being is, do you care? Is there an overall caring about the same things? Do you care about each other? Are you intellectually compatible? This happens a lot. One person loves higher education, and the other person barely got out of high school. You're gonna have a problem because there's a hard line of intellectual compatibility. You have to be able to talk to each other on the same level, and you have to be able to relate to each other on an emotional level, and you have to be able to relate to one another and hunger for the same things spiritually. When I got married, you know what my pastor told me? I'm young. I'm eager. Woo, yeah. You know, he looked right at me and he said, you're going to be out of bed more than you're in it. So he told me <laughs> in my raging 20 year old hormones. And I was like, yeah. He said, just remember, Kevin, you're going to be out of bed more than you're in it. And I was kind of like, what does he mean by that? Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, how I found that out. And my youth pastor said, you're ready to say yes to her, but are you ready to say no to all the others? I was like, "Okay, wow, you guys aren't making this easy, are you? (laughs) So do you know it's character, it's love, it's demonstration of it? Next slide. Position yourself. So okay, here's the idea. Do you want to get married? That's question one. Number two, um, are you marriable? What are you working on? Are you working on yourself? Number three, do you know what you're looking for? Are you looking for the right things? More divorce rate among non-believers is 50%. Among evangelical Christians, it's about 30%. And what does that mean? You say, no, no, I've read the statistics on Christianity. It's the same as the church. Because they lump all Christians into the same pool. Not all Christians are equal, in case you didn't know that. The evangelical, I'll just use that term and ma- but just to give us a, a connection point. Evangelical Christian is someone who loves Jesus, follows Jesus, submits to Christ. That's an entirely different breed of a, than a cultural Christian. Completely different. That person who loves Christ, submits to Christ, and follows Christ, your odds of divorcing are about 30%. So your odds of successfully keeping keep your marriage together are 7 out of 10. That's pretty good odds. For keeping, when the rest of the culture is 50%, and if you want to lump the whole church together and every, everybody says they're a Christian, it's 50%. And the reason is, is because of those things. We have to find character. And God tells us these things on the front end so that we don't have the problem on the back end. Does that make sense? So we need character. We need these things involved. We need, Jesus has to be the center or it isn't gonna work. It isn't gonna work. Jesus isn't a spectator sport, in case you didn't figure that out by now. You can't just you can't worship God from afar. This thing only works when you're participating in it, when you're giving yourself into it and you're following. That's the only way the gospel works. The gospel doesn't work from a distance, and it's not a, like, a, like a badge or some kind of image that we follow. We have to give ourselves to it. And so if all of those things are lined up for you, then the third one is position yourself. What does that mean? Well, let's say it together. No guts, no glory. And say this together. Friendship precedes relationship so what does that mean well you got to put yourself in a position where you're around other people that are that you that you would consider friendship with i was friends with my wife years before we actually got married and it was just a friendship we would hang out together we would go to places and groups and you know and wherever and we would almost intentionally once the romance started we'd be kind of like oh you're going here food you know we'd show up i'd show up she'd show up you know just kind of like hey how's it going you know that kind of thing. You have to position yourself. What does that look like? Be friends with people. Ask somebody out to coffee. Say, hey, there's a group going to the movies. You want to go? We're just going to hang out, shoot some pools, do some popcorn, whatever it is that you do. But friendship has to precede the relationship. And to this day, I'm friends with my wife more than anything else in the world. Right? So when we started dating, it wasn't, oh, man, girl, you looking fine. And she wasn't like, I like your swag. You know, she wasn't like that. That's, that's, those are the foundations that don't make it. You know, we were friends. We just liked hanging out with each other. That was it. And then all of a sudden, the twinkles started happening, and we're kind of like, huh, Well, wow, that's interesting. You know, that kind of thing started happening. And the girls go, well, I'm waiting for a guy to ask me out to coffee. He hasn't, it hasn't happened yet. Let me give you a little dating advice, okay? This is a good dating advice. So, gals, you want to meet somebody, you want to just kind of start hanging out with them. Lunch and coffee and daytime environments are the best situation. There's far less pressure on going and meeting somebody for coffee or hanging out with somebody during the day than there is at night. There's all this pressure. Oh, we're going to dinner. You feel the weight of the pressure. You know, this, you know, you're hanging out with some friends. Oh, I brought my girlfriend along. You know, we're just going to have coffee. We're going to hang out. Oh, okay, see you later. Nice to talk to you. There's no pressure on it. There's an easy out in the whole situation. It's people say, I hear girls going, well, I'm waiting for a guy to ask me out. Let's say it together. Sadie Hawkins, Sadie Hawkins style. Anybody know what Sadie Hawkins is? Usually. It's when in high school, when the girl asked the guy to go to the dance. <laughs> so they called a Sadie Hawkins dance. Dally is like, no, I don't want to do that. So is Sadie Hawkins in the Bible? Sadie Hawkins is definitely in the Bible. It's in the book of Ruth. Boaz didn't ask Ruth out. Ruth asked Boaz out. Read the Bible. Bo, Ruth saw Boaz. She's like, wow, I like him. He's handsome. He's fine. And he owns this whole field and he loves Jesus. Oh my gosh. And so she goes home and she asks her mother-in-law, because both of their husbands had died. This is a story in, they, and so her mother-in-law says, Boaz is a distant relative of mine and he's not married. And she's like, you should go for it. You should go for it. And you know what the Bible says? It said she bathed, she took a bath, Kind of good, <laughs> get all the dirt off, you know, kind of thing. And then she went and she went where he was. And so, what is it saying to us? She made herself pretty. Ladies, you're a fairer sex than we are. You're better looking than we are on our best day. In case you didn't know that, right? A woman looks better than a man even on his best day. We they just, your God made you that way. So she presented herself. She was pretty, and she showed. And Boaz all of a sudden was like, "Who's that?" You know. But Ruth asked Boaz out and they eventually got married. They, began, they formed a relationship, a friendship in honor, and out of that honor came this marriage. And so it's okay, say, hey, why don't you, my wife asked me out, so you know. She didn't ask me out on a date, she asked me to go to a family reunion with her. And then that began, we were already friends, She's called me up and said, hey, I got this family reunion, right? Like all of our family reunions, dysfunctional family reunions. It's like there's going to be some scary people there. There's going to be some all kinds of family. And I need someone to kind of support me. And so I ended up going with her there. And if my wife didn't ask me out, I probably would have never gone out with her. And because here's what we are, guys. We all look at girls and we're like, man, she is like out of my league, man. I don't know if I could ask her. It takes a rare dude to have the guts to cross that line, right? Any guy who's been shot down in flames a few times knows what it feels like. And you're like, oh, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can handle it. So anyway, you get what I'm saying. So I'm just trying to give you a foundation of what to kind of work on and give you some permissiveness here of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And ladies, like, look, I got a friend of mine, Sherry and I, it's a friend, and she married a guy, and she knew exactly what she wanted. And she's going to marry, actually, she's going to marry a pastor. Her dad was a pastor. So There's a whole ministry background behind the story. But um, she went to a church And there was a single pastor there. And she went and she said, I'm going to marry that guy. So she said she knew him. You know, there's some compatibility. So she intentionally befriended him. And they became friends. And Lisa worked her magic, you know, kind of, you know, hey, come on, David, come out with us. Oh, come on. We're all going to go. We're going. Come on. We're going to go eat some chicken wings. Come on. Everybody loves chicken wings. (laughs) And then it was smiles. Oh, you're so funny. Okay, should I help you guys with this? You wanna know what guys want? I'll give, you, I'll, give you, I'll give you some inroads. Women want kindness and respect, or they want love, attention, and sweetness and kindness. That's what they want. Am I wrong, ladies? You want somebody to treat you kindly. You want somebody to speak nicely to you, speak lovingly to you, speak affirmingly. What guys want, one of the easiest ways to get a guy's attention, laugh at his jokes, right? And like what he likes. Like what he likes. See, you got thumbs up going up all over the rooms here. Like what he likes. So if this dude's really into the dolphins, girl, you should go buy yourself a dolphin jersey and go, is it game time? Is it game time? You're married. You don't count. You're married. <laughs> <laughs> she threw her dolphin jersey away. Now, I'm married. This don't count anymore. But like what he likes. You know? Like, wow, that's so great. You like that? I like that, too. I'm totally into Coldplay. She's going over and Googling. Who's Coldplay? What is their? These are just little things, but character is what you're looking for. Vision for the family. So hopefully, singles, this gives you a, a, a lane and a vision. Like you have to want to know if you're going to, if you want to be married or not, and then you have to know what you're looking for, and you have to work on yourself, and then you have to position yourself. You have to position yourself and go for it. God has someone for you. He has someone. I tell my son, you only need one. You don't need a thousand. You need one. Right? You don't need a thousand women. You need one woman. That's all you need. One. Trust me. <laughs> you got one you got enough it's there it's down so vision for the family i'm going to rock you through this so vision for the family Families come in twos. so what i want to do is i want to give you some, just four quick little stops of four things that you can implement in your family so this applies to married people or parents or married people that have children so you can be single parent you can be mom and dad or you can have you know kids that whole kind of family dynamic going on families come in twos this is often the struggle with families we're too busy We're too tired, and we're too serious. Can I get a witness? Anybody help me? We're too busy, too tired, and we're too serious. So here's four lenses to help your family in the future. Next slide. Or over the coming year. Got it? Next slide. Did it go? There it is, joy. Why do you need joy? Because seriousness is the undertone of our families, particularly if you have children. Oh my gosh, he got to see an algebra. What am I gonna do? The world is gonna come to an end. You know, we're so serious and we put so much pressure on us. And the reality is when it comes to children, the chances of your child becoming a professional athlete are very small. The chances of your child becoming the next Einstein are very small, but your child can still be successful. And yet we pressure, we put all this pressure in our families. We put all this seriousness in our families when, in fact, the undertone of our families should be joy. We get so fearful of things that we don't enjoy the family that we actually have. We don't take the time to enjoy what we have because we're so busy trying to figure everything out. And what the Bible tells us is just enjoy. So this verse here comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, and it was written by a guy named Solomon. Solomon had it all. He had all the money he could possibly have. He had parties. He had vineyards. He had cars, chariots. He had horses. He had everything you could possibly imagine. And at the conclusion of him experiencing all these things, he wrote a book called Ecclesiastes. And he said, I had it all. It's a crazy book. Solomon experienced it all. He said, I gave myself for a few years, and I was drunk all the time. And I came to the conclusion that drinking is folly and foolishness and chasing after the wind. So then I gave myself to laughter. I built myself a few comedy clubs is what he was saying. And I laughed my butt off all the time, every day, because this was my season where I was going to give myself to laughter. Because what he was looking for was joy. And he said, but then I learned that all of that consuming laughter is foolishness and chasing in the wind. And he goes on and on and on and on through this book. And he concludes that the only thing that brings joy and satisfaction is the honor of God and living the way he has called us to live. And so Ecclesiastes 8 says this. This is Solomon's one of his thoughts here. He says, I recommend having fun. That's a great recommendation, right? I recommend having fun. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. I say, my, my job's too stressful. Find something to enjoy out of it. My marriage is too freaky. Find something to enjoy out of it. My kids, my kids are too crazy. Find something to enjoy out of it. Because there's nothing better than for two people in this world to eat, drink, and enjoy their life. That way they will experience some happiness along with all their hard work. Right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? A lot of hard work. A lot of work. We feel like we never have a joy. We never have anything fun. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. So what does this look like? So this is the idea. What can you do with your family? What can you do in your life over the coming year that's going to intentionally put some joy into your life? And it doesn't have to be anything serious or like so intense. It can simply be, I'm going to laugh a little bit more. I'm going to laugh at myself. I'm not going to take myself so seriously. When my teenage son laughs at something about me, I'm going to laugh right back at him. I'm going to laugh the same thing. I'm going to laugh with him. I'm not going to get mad if somebody gets upset at me or somebody thinks something that I did was funny. You know, I'm going to laugh with them. So not taking yourself so seriously, laughing. We had a family friend one time, when, uh, and, and uh, I think it was Mariah, my daughter, that the son came to Mariah and said, man, your parents are always laughing. My parents never laugh. What a sad commentary. If your kids grow up and never see the two of you laughing together, or never seeing you like having any fun or always seeing it that's not the you know that's not a really so what's the point what does it look like just laugh a little bit more have a little bit more fun laugh your, people might look at you like what happened to you well you've made a decision to put joy in your life take some time go get an ice cream it's okay to go through the dairy queen drive-through every now and then right it's okay you say i'm lactose intolerant well then let somebody else eat the ice cream and you can watch them as you you know, enjoy your lactose intolerance. (laughs) Have a Cinnabon. Go to a baseball game. right? I had a friend of mine, and he lived his life so seriously, and he had a statement, and let's just say it together. It's a simple statement. He called it Rocky Road. Say it with me. Rocky Road. When things would get too crazy, and he felt like he was too serious, he would tell himself, Rocky Road. And so he would either go to the ice cream shop and get Rocky Road, or he related it like I'd go to a baseball game. He's like, whenever I felt like that, he goes, I needed a pressure valve. I needed to have some joy in my life. I needed to do something. Whenever marriage became too much, I wanted to have fun with my wife. Whenever my kids were freaking me out, I intentionally got rid of the seriousness, and I wanted to enjoy them. Rocky Road, your kids are freaking you out. Your kids got C's, so what? So what? You know? Oh my gosh, my kid got a C in calculus. The world's going to end. What did you get in calculus? Did you even take calculus? No. Then why are you know? It's like if your kids not prolific, you know, my kids will tell you that like we look at their grades and like okay, this per- my kids got they're really good in English and they're really good with writing, so I expect A's and B's. But if they can't pull the grade in math, then my attitude is C's. I'm not going to put pressure on the child to do something that they can't do, right? At least at that stage in their life. I'm not going to accept a D or I'm not going to accept failure. But look, if you can bat bat for average, we're okay. My wife likes to say, straight A students work for high achieving C students. It's true. It's true. Half these guys that are running Fortune 500 companies didn't even finish college, and you're worried because your kid didn't get a C, got a C in calculus. Really? I look more for drive, I look for character, I look for a willingness to achieve, I look for sense that works in this world. You know, you may be different, and if your kid's an academic, if my kids were brainiacs and they were straight A's across the board and they could do all kinds of stuff, well, I would expect nothing different. But what I was trying to do was trying to find where they were in relationship to that. That's all I was trying to do. And we put pressure on people to achieve things that they're not even at the level to achieve it yet. And we do the same thing in our marriages and in our homes. Newly want a marriage that looks like they've been married for 30 years and they've been married for two or three months. You know, oh, I just wish our marriage was like Betty and Jim's. Well, Betty and Jim been married for 25, 30 years. They've worked on all their junk, right? You're still early in the game. So stop putting the pressure on your marriage to be what it's not ready to be. It's not there yet. Work with where you are. You wouldn't want to see me five years married. It was rough. I didn't want to give anybody marriage counseling, right? Because it was not good. It was bad, right? So the point is is not to put pressure. In, lighten up. Don't put that level of expectation on it. Grow with where you're at. Two things that families enjoy most are board games and camping. My wife and I, I'll just give you a clue so you guys understand. This is what happened with us. We have kids. My wife and I were married. We, have, we start having children and we don't know what we're doing. OK? So I'm right in the game with you. We did not know what we were doing, completely clueless. We read somewhere or we heard somewhere that one of the ways to build camp, one of the ways to build memories, one of the ways to build bonding relationships within the family is to go camping. And so we started going camping. Sounded cheap? Sounded like I could do that? So we, we started going camping. So we went camping all the time. We would go two or three times a year. Why? Because it didn't cost much, like 11 bucks a night for a camping site or 20 bucks a night. I'm like, hey, we can do that. I can throw a tent down. You know. And so we took our kids camping, we took our cousins camping, we just went camping all the time. Why? Because we couldn't do everything, but we can go camping. We can create some bonding experiences when the rain is coming down and flooding the tent, right? We can create some bonding experiences when the raccoon is running off with a loaf of bread. First time I ever go camping, I mean, we bring everything, we stack it all up. I mean, we're like bringing half the house. First time we go camping. And we're up there and I'm trying to figure out what to do, and it was like dusk, and you know, I hadn't put a tent up and since in Boy Scout days, and so I'm trying to figure out, like, okay, we got to put the tent up, and all of a sudden, I look up, and the loaf of bread is going like this through the weeds, and I'm like, what the heck is that? That's our bread, you know, and then I look over, and the raccoons are in the cooler. Hey, man, they got Snickers bars. Come on over here, guys. I mean, they were raiding our cooler, so anyway, but just finding things that create bond. Go to the park, right? Smile. Just let your kids run on the playground and just laugh. Laugh. Oh, that's so funny. That's so funny. That's so funny. You know, just enjoy it. Just do something that creates bond. It doesn't have to be money. Next slide. So put some joy. What can you do to put joy into your relationship? We're having a church picnic in a, when's that, Shelly? The 20th of this month? 28th of this month. Hey, we're having a church picnic at Peacock Park. And you all are invited, right? Because we're a family and we're trying to figure out what can we do to bring joy into this family. So let's have some fun together. Let's go to the park right let's just watch how whatever it is we do let's watch crickets dance or something but let's just go to the park so joy is a big piece so what can you do to put joy what can you do to enjoy your spouse more this year what can you do to enjoy your children more this year what can you do to just lighten yourself up a little bit and laugh it's all going to get better second thing is growth it's going to go fast now Growth. what does that mean you were to grow jesus grew in wisdom stature favor with god and people what is wisdom? He began to learn, began to grow, making wise choices. You say he was God. Yes, but he went through a developmental process as a human. He was always God. He never sinned. Stature, which means character, it's all of those things that we talk about, you know, humility, uh, accountability, that type of thing. He grew spiritually. He grew with people. That's socially. What does that mean? That what is the growth pattern? What can you do this year to grow with your family? What can you do this year to grow personally, to make your family better? What does it look like? It looks like emotional maturity. If you're going to remain arrestedly developed in a marriage, you're not going to last. It's just not going to last. You know, it just isn't. I tell guys all the time, you've got to grow up a little bit because the girl that married you, women change. Help me out, ladies. Women change. Dahlia is saying no. Are you saying yes? Okay, I got a thumbs up on that one. All right. <laughs> Women change. And what happens is, is that the guy she married at 20 is not the guy she wants at 30. So you have to grow. Right? She marries a boy, but she wants you to become a man. I'm just saying. You guys are looking at me like, oh, I don't know about that, dude. It's true. It's totally, totally true. That's right. They want you to become a man. They want you to demonstrate that you're a man. Well, she liked me back in the days when I was irresponsible and I wouldn't do anything. Well, she doesn't want that now. It's how women are. They grow. They want to mature. They want you to grow up. They want that thing to happen. So we have to grow in our emotional maturity as men and women. We have to learn conflict resolution. Ladies, if you're still freaking out at the drop of a dime, you need to get emotionally mature. Get a grip on your emotions. Understand how you're feeling and then express it. Women typically, kaboom, right? We just blow up with their emotions, or they stuff them, and then eventually it blows up. That's how we are emotionally. We're frappuccinos. We ice people out. We're garbage cans. We stuff it down there until the smell becomes overwhelming. Or we're terrorists. We just look for an opportunity to drop a dirty bomb on somebody. That's how we are with our emotions. We have to learn to emotionally mature. How are you feeling why are you feeling this way? What is the resolution? We have to learn the processes of, of dealing with ourselves emotionally and then handling that correctly. Conflict resolutions huge in relationships. So we have to grow maturity. What can you do to grow emotionally this year? What can you do to grow in conflict resolution? Talk more kindly. Lower your tone. That would be a great step in conflict resolution. That would help a lot. Every <laughs> Talking in lower tones. Can we lower the tone a little bit? Can we talk to each other in this way? Can we, not t- can we deal with conflict this way? Can we affirm, okay, I see what you're saying. I want to apologize for that. I'm sorry. You know, can we do that? Can we learn conflict resolution? Learning to deal with loss and failure. This is a big one. Even if you have kids, guess what? Your child's not going to win every game, Cam Newton. You're not going to win every game. just isn't. Right? That doesn't mean you sit there and pout like a baby and kick tables because you didn't win every game. You're not going to win every game. You're going to lose some of the time. You're going to suffer loss. And, some, and what do you do when you suffer loss? You evaluate the experience. People say experience is the best teacher. Experience is not. Evaluated experience is. You can suffer 100 losses and never evaluate the experience, and you're no better. You have to look back and go, what went wrong? What did I do? What should I have done? What could I have done better? Maybe there's nothing. Maybe it's the position that you put yourself in. But the idea is to evaluate the experience and move forward from the experience. You have to evaluate the experience. So what can you do this year to evaluate? Einstein said the definition of stupidity is doing the same thing over and over again and what? Expecting the same results. So we we want stupidity defined, keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting it to be different. Evaluate the experience and make the necessary changes. What can you do to make the changes that are necessary for your marriage to work? What can you do to make the changes that are necessary for your family to grow, for your children to mature, for yourself to be a better husband, a better father, a better mother, a better parent? What what can you do? Husband, wife, that type of thing. What can you do in those ways? Maturity, conflict resolution. Those are just some keys. So having a vision for where you want to go. Next slide. Perseverance and encouragement. You have to plan, if you're in a marriage or you have children, you have to plan on not quitting on your spouse. You have to plan on not quitting on your children. Why? Because you're going to have golden opportunities to quit. And all the married people said, that's right. You're going to have golden opportunities to quit on your marriage. You're going to have golden opportunities to quit on your children. Golden. Golden. You're going to have legitimate excuse. Well, I quit because of this, or I gave up because of that, or that happened because of this. But you have to make a conscious decision as partners, as married partners, to not quit on your marriage. The godly may trip seven times, but they will get up. You have to go into a relationship, a marriage, without an exit plan. I tell people, my wife will say to you that divorce is not an option, but murder is. Okay? So if Sherry and I go off on a long weekend and I fail to return, you know something went wrong, OK? Just putting that out there. Just putting that out there, right? <laughs> you have to plan not to quit, not to quit on your children. Your children will give you, particularly in their teenage years and in their early adolescent or early adulthood years, some of you haven't experienced this yet, but you will. Your children will give you a lot of excuses to quit on them. They just will. It's how life is. You know, And so you have to make a decision, I'm not going to quit on my children. I'm not gonna cross lines that I shouldn't cross, but I'm going to be here for availability, support, encouragement, and direction. I'm gonna make myself available. I'm not gonna close the door. You have to make that decision. That's again, an issue of servitude. So we have to plan on not quitting on each other. And then we have to plan on encouraging one another. You want life? Life comes through encouragement. Encouragement is the oxygen of the soul. Ready? Your Father loves you. Your heavenly Father loves you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are on purpose with a purpose. You cannot fail. The only way you can fail is if you quit. That's it. You cannot fail unless you quit. Don't you feel better? That's life right there. That's that's gospel truth. Encouragement is life to the soul. We encourage one another. That's so what the scripture tells us to do. Encourage one another while it is still today. In other words, not tomorrow, not next week, not next year, right now. Encourage one another while it is today. Encouragement is meaning that you appreciate something about someone who is not like you. That's what encouragement. And guess what? Nobody's like you. A big source of conflict is we think everybody's like us. Hello. Well, you should have known that. Well, why should I have known that? Because you knew that? Well, just because you know that didn't mean I should know that. Because I don't know that. You know that? <laughs> so you have to appreciate things about people that are not like you. Valuing them, seeing them through different lenses. Spiritual giftedness. How has God made them? I have a friend, and her, her husband loves chocolate. And it was causing a lot of conflict in her marriage because her husband loved chocolate. He was eating chocolate all the time. And he was like, why are you on me? Are you my mother? You know, I want to have a piece of chocolate. Why can't I have a piece of chocolate? Eh? until she changed her perspective and said, that's just how how he is. I just really appreciate him. He's got a sweet tooth, I just love him, you know? He's learned to tone it down. He eats half a box instead of a full box now, but you know. (laughs) But we appreciate the things, we appreciate spiritual gifts, how God has made them. We appreciate the heart in another person. We intentionally look for the heart, the intention, how someone is, what matters to them, and we encourage that. I really appreciate the fact that you care for people so much. I really appreciate the fact that you love this way. I really appreciate your abilities. Man, there is something that you all do that's better than anybody else. Mark it down. Whether it's penmanship or whatever it may be, everybody has unique abilities that are greater than anything anybody else can do. We have to find abilities in one another. I really love the way that you do that. I really love the way that you, whatever it may be, pick something, but valuing that in the other person, your children. Your children have unique abilities. Affirm them what they can do, not what they can't do, right? We focus on the C that they got in calculus and not the A that they got in English. Well, that a is good, but you gotta bring that C up, boy. Gotta bring that C up. Well, not a mathematician. Aren't you glad? Celebrate it. Thank God my kids can do something. Thank God my children, your children have abilities, find it. Personalities, your children have unique personalities. Your wife has a unique personality that's not like you. Your husband has a unique personality that's not like you. If anything is good, if anything is noble, if anything is of perf- er, good report, think on those things. Find the good and focus on the good. If you've ever had children, you, when you two get married, you know, when you're husband and wife and you have children, or even if you're a single parent and you're raising a child, one of the things that often becomes very relevant to us is a lot of times our children are not like us. You're like, Did, should we get a DNA test? Because I don't know if this kid actually belongs to me. I don't see this on your side or my side of the family at all. But what you have to do is learn to value their personality. Right. I don't try. Don't try to make a kid an athlete if they're an artist. Don't try to make them an artist if they're an athlete. Don't try to make them a musician if there's if there's something that they're not. Let them be who they are. Find what they are and who they are and develop that. That's your responsibility as a parent. Your parent, your job isn't to shape them into your image. Your, your job is to shape them into God's image according to how they're made. That's the idea. Valuing their experiences and what other people bring to the table. So perseverance and encouragement. It's gonna help a lot of you and your families if you will focus on not giving up and you will focus on intentionally encouraging one another. If it kills you. You know what my wife would tell me when we first got married? You ready? She'd say, fake it. Just fake it. That's true. just, Just fake it. Because we don't always feel like it. If we're really ch- honest, our emotions aren't always there. But I would, and I would make myself. And then, as I would always make myself, then it would reach a point where she'd be like, well, Do you mean that? And, you know, so initially she was like, I just want you to fake it. And, to, and then I would get to a point and she'd be like, Do you mean that? Do you really mean that? And, you know, and, and I did. I would make myself love her. I would make myself do the things that I knew I was supposed to do, whether I felt like it or not. And I bat maybe 65% of that right now. I'm not 100%, so I still got my window that I'm working on. But I've, I've tipped the scale more in my favor than it was the other way. So we, we do that, we, we intentionally do that. Make it till you make it. Make it till you make it, yeah. Next slide. Last slide. Priorities, last slide. So as a family, this is the things that you're focusing on. What can you do this year to persevere a little bit more? Can you shift your attitude and say, I'm taking quit out of the equation? That word is not going to be found in my vocabulary. I'm not quitting. We're going to tear the whole thing apart down to its foundation and rebuild it if we have to, but we're not going to quit. That's the attitude you got to have. Encouragement. How are we going to tear it all down and how are we not going to quit? Because you are going to encourage. You are going to encourage, all right? You are going to tell the man he can do it. You are going to tell the man I believe in you. You tell that man I believe in you. I am with you. I am supporting you. I am going to follow. I am I'm, I'm encouraging you. You just you are you are he's going to think he's bulletproof now, you know. It's true. It's true. Women, if you knew the power of your words, somebody said, (laughs) "Woo, ladies, if you knew the power of your words, you would use them far more wisely. You would. Your words have insanely power, insane power, particularly with men. You have a lot of power with your words and affirmation and encouragement and those kind of ways. It's true. Guys, same kind of thing, which I won't get into. But anyway, priorities. So making an intention not to quit, making an intention to encourage and then making an intention of priorities. This is going to change you. What are our priorities? Our priorities are what is right to God. We are not ordinary people. We are not part of this culture. We are part of a kingdom. We are not like this world. We are like his world. That's who we are. That's the truth. And so we align ourselves with what it means. We're God's special people. We're his royal priests, His holy nation. We're out of darkness and we live out of light now. So what does that mean if we're to live out of light? It means that what is important to the Lord must be important to us. That's a huge shift for some people is if you just stopped doing what was important to you and started shifting your life into what God said to do, your whole world would change. Your whole world would change. I'll share you a quick story. I'm already over. So what's it matter? What's another five minutes, huh? Two, three minutes. Whatever. Whatever, I think Jesus loves the 1130 service. That's what I think. I just think he loves the 1130 service. He's just like, give him more. Here's some other basket. Throw that out there. Here you go. What was I going to say? <laughs> oh, when I first became a believer, I was coming out a lot of crazy stuff. And so I wanted change so bad, you had no idea. I was so hungry and desperate for change. And when I came to Christ, I came to a church that proclaimed promises and told me the gospel was real and told me the gospel had power and told me that these things were possible if I would follow And I would hunger for the things of heaven, that I would see things happen in my life that never would happen under any circumstances. And I was dumb enough to believe it. And I said to myself, that's right. I was that dumb. That's right. Foolish to this world, but wise unto Christ, you know. And so I took this period of my life and I gave myself to everything that Christ said. Anything and everything. I was in church all the time. If there was a teaching class, if there's anything that was meant to build me up in my faith, I learned my Bible. I just wholly submerged myself in it. Only Jesus was what I would tell myself. I don't want anything else. I didn't want anything to do with my past. I didn't want anything to do with the music or the people or the places or the things that I listened or was a part of anymore. I wanted nothing to do with it, and I gave myself 100% into the things of Christ, and my entire world shifted. Everything changed. Everything changed. If God said tithe, I tithe. If God said be in church, I was in church. If God said fellowship, I was fellowshipping. If God said serve, I served. Everything He told me to do, I did it to the letter. And you know why? Because I had had so many things in my life that had lied to me. I'd had so many things in my life. Well, if you just do these little things and put your heel behind your head, everything's going to change. And so I believed that I had just accessed power, I believed that something had happened. And I wanted to know, is God who he says he is? Because I've been searching for this my whole life. Is he who he says he is? And if he is, then I want all of it. And I gave myself to it. I've never stopped. I've never stopped. And what ended up happening was he washed away all of these things. I was l- really isolated with the things that I came out of. I came out of beer drinkers and hellraisers, I came out of a lot of crazy, radical, rowdy. You know, good people, solid people, working people, all kinds of wonderful things, but a lot of dysfunction, and I came out of that. And I had to leave all of that behind and cut that world off and live out of this world for a while. And once I got into this world and God completely changed me, I was able to go back into this world, and it didn't have the same effect on me. You understand? That's the point. I don't have a problem with alcohol, but I used to have a problem with alcohol. I don't have a problem with music. But I used to have a problem with music. I don't have a problem being around people that kind of used to lead me astray because they don't lead me astray anymore, right? This is years in the making, but nonetheless, everything's changed. That's a miracle in and of itself. These things have no control over me. I'm, a, I'm not bound to that. I'm not in bondage. I'm free. I can be around them, and I'm perfectly at liberty and not in any way enslaved to the things that enslave them because that's the miracle of the gospel. He changes you. He transforms you, Right? And so that's the point. And so some of you, the radical shift that you need to make in your families and in your world is setting your priorities in order and realizing that you're extraordinary. That when Jesus is calling you unto his priorities, he's not calling you to average. He's calling you to exceptional. He's not calling you to this low place, even though it relates to humility. He's actually calling you higher. That's what he's doing. He's calling you higher. So our priorities to us is to be what God wants for us. What is right to the Lord? What is right to the Lord? I tell people, I go, you want a default mode? When in doubt, honor the Lord. Well, I don't know. You know, I just got all this money, and I'm not really sure if I should give on it. And I don't know about that. And, you know, should I give? Because, you know, maybe Jesus wants me to have it all. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what he wants. Right in his word. It's all yours. And I would tell him, I'm like, look, when in doubt, honor God. I don't know if God wants me to just freak out and blow up on my wife. Does that honor the Lord? When in doubt, honor the Lord. You're not doing it for people. You're not even doing it for yourself. Whatever it is you're doing. I don't know if I want to go to work. My boss doesn't like me. I hate the environment. They just hired two people above me and they're making more money than me. I don't know. I think I'm going to slack off. Does that honor the Lord? Honor the Lord. When in doubt, honor the Lord. Set his priorities as your own. We're not of this world. Basically, it's telling us that the things of this world are all based on sex, power, and prestige. There is nothing wrong. Say it with me. You ready, Christian? There is nothing wrong. With sex, sex, with power, power. or prestige. With prestige. As long, come on, long. As, it's as it's properly aligned. Sex, power, and prestige when it's misaligned, is not of the God, of not of the Lord. But sex, when it's aligned within the context that God has defined it, He says, go for it. Power when it's properly aligned, what is power? Power, if there is nothing wrong with wanting power, so that you can bring about the righteousness of God. There is nothing wrong with that. It's actually called justice. Justice is the right use of power. Injustice is the abuse of power. And there's lots of injustice in our world in case you didn't know. And God would clearly give it power and power to positions to people who would be willing to do the right thing with it, who would be willing. So there's power is not the enemy. It's riding up with power correctly. Prestige isn't the enemy. Prestige is wrong if it's all about you and it's vanity and all you want to do is sign eight by 10 glossies and make everybody think you're wonderful. There's nothing wrong with having prestige, which is a fame or a known position. There's nothing wrong with that, as long as that position is not about you, but you're subservient. you're bringing that position into a place where you can honor the Lord with it. So it's important we understand this, because we treat these things oftentimes when we teach Christians, is we treat like sex as an enemy, power is an enemy, prestige is an enemy. That's not true. None of those things are true. The misalignment of those things are our enemy because they end up destructive. They end up destroying us. But if we line them up correctly, they're actually blessings. Does that make sense? So it's okay for you to want the position of power so that you can do the right thing. It's okay, Lord, if I had that promotion and I was running this company, and if you gave me these things or whatever it may be, I don't know what your, what your desire is, but some of you have a desire and you suppress the desire to achieve because you think that it's not of the Lord. I'm, not, I'm telling you, it is of the Lord, but you just have to do it the right way. You've got to get your heart set right and pursue it from the right direction. It's okay to be prestigious. You don't think Jesus wants some people who are prestigious, that when the lights are on them, they give him glory? That when the camera's on them, they give him glory? That when they're in the interview and they go, wow, you're just a, you know, there's just something different about you. Well, I, I follow the Lord. I'm a devout, however you say it, whatever language you use, but you honor the Lord out of it. I'm not perfect, but Christ is in me. That's what you're seeing that's different. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving glory to God the Father. That's the point. Honor the Lord. When in doubt, honor God. So I challenge you guys to do this. Set your priorities in order. Set your heart free. The Bible says, I run in the paths of his commands because he has made my heart free. Set your heart free to run in his paths. Set your heart free. What does it mean to have a free heart? There are desires and things that you want but you're suppressing them because you're not sure that God wants you to have them. All things are given to us by the Lord, but to be aligned with his purposes. Does that make sense? The problem was, is any good thing that's misaligned becomes a bad thing? It's just true. When we have a good thing and we misalign it, it becomes a bad thing. So the the, the goal is, is to align ourselves so that we can have the good thing and use it for the good purposes. This is what the Lord wants. Bible, what what do you think it means when God says, I will cause you to ride upon the high places? What is he saying? How many of you have ever actually asked, Lord, call me to the high place. Take me to that high place. Give to me that high place. How many of you ever understood when God says, I will make you the head and not the tail? That's not a default statement. You have to want that. In other words, that's just not given to you. You have to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to be the head and not the tail. And he may ask you, why do you want it? Why do you want it? So that I can give you glory. Ah heaven is singing now. And you know what he says? At last someone wants to be the head so that they can give me glory. You and I weren't made to, to have the glory. The glory is the weight of goodness. All the goodness is his. But we get to stand in the light. <laughs> and it is good to just stand in his light, man. So how many of you hunger for that? Ask him for it. Go for it. Ask him for it. Believe him for it. Let, and then when he's telling you what you need to do, he's going to tell you, Kevin, I want to give you this. We got to deal with some issues here because your character can't handle what I want to give you. You understand? Or the season is not yet. There's a time I'm hearing you and this is how you pursue him. You pursue him and you ask him for it and you're sensitive to the things that he's telling you. You're sensitive to the instructions that he's given you. You're sensitive to prophetic impulses. You ask God for something, and a prophetic, a, a twinkle comes into the room, and somebody's talking about the very thing that you, you, you ask the Lord for. Or God brings someone across your path that is in direct line with what God has told you. And we just kind of wave as them as he's passing by, or them as they pass by. We have to follow the prophetic impulse. That's what it looks like. But we ask the Lord for these things. We seek these things. We hunger for these things. This is what heaven wants. It's what God wants. Very few Christians go for it. You know why? Well, I'm just 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 happy to be in the house is that it are you happy to be in the house that's great but do you think your father is happy just having you in the house are you, is anybody here happy with your child just existing don't you want to see some hope actualized out of their kids and see some beauty expressed through their life and see them it doesn't matter what they do but they do something amazing it doesn't matter if they raise kids it, do, it doesn't matter if they, they they pick flowers it doesn't matter but we want to see some beauty or some joy coming out of their out of our children. That's how our Father is. He calls us to higher things. And if our Father is calling us to higher things, then we should agree and want the higher things that He has for us. That's the goal. So anyway, here's another basket of stuff I guess I'm throwing on you. So let's pray. Let me bless you. Father, we just thank you so much for this day. We thank you that you're so good. We thank you that your heart is so full. Your heart is so full. And you want your children and you love these people so much, God. He's just calling them and calling them and calling them and calling them. And Lord, I feel it. And I'm grateful to have the honor of doing that for you. So I just release blessing into their lives today. That you would challenge them, God, that you would inspire them, that you would just change them in every way. That this word wouldn't return void, God, but it would accomplish what you send it to do. And even one or two things, even if they're little things, God, would just be embedded in their heart and they'd be willing to take a step because they believe you. So, Father, we just honor you today. We love you, Jesus. I release your spirit, transform lives, give you glory. Let me bless you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And May the Lord give you peace in Jesus' name. Amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a wonderful week.